1: Good afternoon. Welcome to Soul to Soul and always a pleasure to share some thoughts with you on a Wednesday afternoon. So I'm going to share with you one or two fascinating insights and then we're going to have a uh, fun time talking about one of the greatest sages in the Jewish world in the last 500 years and that is the Great and Holy Maharal. But we're going to get to that at the second part of the show. Um, The reason why we're going to talk about the Maharal is because next Wednesday is actually the Yotzat of the Maharal. Today, the Hebrew day today is the 11th of Elu. Um, Next Wednesday is the 18th of Elul. Unfortunately, I won't be be able to have a show next week. And in two weeks' time already, we'll talk about Rosh Hashanah. So I want to take the opportunity today to talk a little bit about the Maharal who was one of the most powerful and impactful leaders of the Jewish people in the last 500 years. But first, I want to mention to you uh, a very powerful message that we learned from the Pasha we read last week. Last week, we read Pasha Shoftim, and Pasha Shoftim tells us about um, many different things, but one of them being the requirement of a king within Klal Yisrael to have two Sifrei Torah. Isn't that an interesting thing? So the king who would be appointed by God um, through the Nabi, through the prophet, would have to carry with him a Sefer Torah. Wherever he went, he had his own personal Sefer Torah, but that wasn't enough. He also had to have a special, special Sefer Torah in his treasury. Why is that? Why two Sefer Torah? Because when he went out in public, when he ran the nation, when he met with the people, so the king would face all sorts of issues, all sorts of challenges, all sorts of storms. And with him would be his personal Sefer Torah. Why? Because that Sefer Torah would guide him. He, the way he viewed the people, the way he viewed his leadership of the nation, should be through the eyes, through the guidance, through the framework of the Torah that he had with him. But that Torah would face many different storms. It would face the rains and the sun, and the literally the letters of that sefer Torah could fade and could crack, and therefore the king had to have another sefer Torah in his treasury, and he would have to constantly compare his sefer Torah that he took out with him with the original pristine sefer Torah that was in his treasury, and what happened to the king is something that literally. Is something that happens to all of us figuratively we all are in a similar situation we have we go out into the world and we face the vicissitudes of life and the storms that come our way with our own Sefer Torah we take the Torah with us into our lives and we are supposed to live a life based on the teachings of the Torah based on the morality of and the framework that God gives us in the Torah and that Torah is met with many different storms and sometimes we live up to those commitments and to that moral system of God and sometimes unfortunately we don't sometimes unfortunately we lose our way and those letters become cracked and those letters become faded And We don't always live up to those principles of the Torah and the truth is in life There are certain phases certain stages where we are inspired where we are moved by the moment For example, let's say when a person gets married. That's a very beautiful powerful time a time when a person sees how many events took place and how many circumstances had to be just right in order for Um, the man and the woman to get together and to end up standing under the chuppah together. It's a very moving time. And it's a time where people make commitments to God and to a higher power and acknowledge God's kindness and God's um, orchestrating events that will end in this wonderful occasion. Um, Another example of that is when a person is a parent to children, when... um, a child is born into a family, and the miracle of childbirth takes place right in front of the couple, which is just absolutely miraculous and breathtaking and incredible and spectacular and bizarre. The birth of a child is just unbelievable to see where that child came from, and it's from the seed of the mother and father, and the child grows as a fetus in the womb of the mother. Just phenomenal, incredible. And then the child is born, and it's a combination of the parents' With the genes of the parent and now becomes an independent individual living physiologically on its own beforehand being completely reliant on its mother Um, and when it's born in those early years constantly reliant still although an independent creature reliant on being fed by the mother and being nurtured by the mother and by the child's parents so it really is quite a incredible process the the birth of a child and then also parents are moved and commit themselves to a higher power and to serving Hashem. But unfortunately, life happens and unfortunately the storms take place and that is life. Life is about the challenges that Hashem sends our way and that Torah that we've committed ourselves to those letters crack and sometimes those letters fade. And Therefore we are supposed to just like the king who compares his personal Torah that he takes out with him to the pristine Torah That's in his treasury We too also are supposed to take that Torah that we take with us in our lives that we carry with us As we face the challenges of our lives and we're supposed to constantly Check is that Torah intact are we living up to that higher moral code? are we are living according to the holy words of Torah and the framework that Hashem has given us and When do we do that? When do we compare our Torah that we take with us to the pristine Torah? That's this time of year the month of Elul, the month of preparation as we head into the holy powerful awesome days of Rosh Hashanah a series shuvah and Yom Kippur those are times where we actually comparing ourselves to the Torah? Am I in line with the purpose for which Hashem created the world? Am I in sync with the values of the Torah and the teachings of the Torah and the outlook of the Torah? Um, am I, do I have to ne- recalibrate myself and come back into that and, and fix those um, letters that have faded and repair those letters that have cracked And return myself to the original holy pristine Torah. So that's the power of the days of Rosh Hashanah of Seresh and of Yom Kippur and it's a wonderful opportunity for us. In other words Hashem built it into the system just like the king Has his Torah takes out and then he compares it with the Torah that's in his treasury We go out into our lives and into the year with our Torah with our commitment to Torah and then we compare ourselves to that Torah in these holy days, and these awesome days. So, emirz Hashem, please God, we should all use the opportunity, use the system that Hashem created. Embrace, you know, we think, oh gosh, it's Edel again, it's Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, those awesome, frightening days, but they really are a great gift and a great opportunity for us to recalibrate, for us to assess, have I veered off the path, have I gone away from those words of the Torah, have the letters cracked and faded, and I have a chance now to repair them and to make them once more sharp and clear and the guiding principles of my life. And so it's a beautiful lesson we learn from the King for our lives too, and the beautiful Yomim Tovim that are coming up shortly. Stay with us, we'll be back in a moment.
0: This is focus on our sages with Rabbi Danny Saxstein on 101.9 High FM.
1: So let's now move on into the Torah reading this week, which, in my mind, has a teaching which is so essential and valuable to a human being. It's a magnificent insight into the psychological makeup of human beings and gives us the tools to develop ourselves and to become great and holy human beings and that is the the Torah says he so the the to reading this week starts with these words when you go out to war against your enemy and Hashem places your enemy into your hands and the Rav Moshe Sternbuch points out that it's in singular this pasuk not in plural What does it say? He says the Mechama al oi He's talking about the soldiers in the army. It would say al um, Against your enemy Because you're the soldiers of the army And he quotes the Zohar the holy Zohar which is the classic work of Jewish mysticism of Kabbalah Written by Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai. The Zohar says that this pasuk is not only referring to a Jewish soldier who's going out to battle, but it's in singular because it refers to each and every one of us, every single Jew that's at war, that's in battle with our own personal enemy. What's our own personal enemy? So the Torah explains, based on the Zohar, the explanation, the understanding is that within every single human being, every single one of us, we have two parts to our personality, two parts that make up a person. The one part is the altruistic aspect of ourselves, the part of us that wants to connect to truth, wants to pursue truth, the part of us that wants to connect with God and spirituality and eternity. That's what we call the positive inclination or otherwise known as the Yetzer And there's another very different part of our being, the part of our being which is indulged in the appetites, the insatiable at- appetites that we have for power and pleasure and which is narcissistic in nature. The lower part of our being which wants to chase after Um, The material comforts, the material pleasures, the material benefits of this physical world. And those two parts of our being are in constant conflict of each other. They're at loggerheads and they are fighting a struggle, a deep struggle within every single human being. Which part of our life, which part of our being do we listen to? Do we turn to the Yatza Tov and the Yatza Tov dominates the Yatza Hora? The Yatza Tov often is known as the as the rider and the Etsohora is the is the horse. Does the rider control, dominate and override the animalistic physical side of our being or does the horse control the rider? And that's the inner struggle of every single human being in this world. And it's our mission in this world. We were sent to this world in order to break that lower part of our being, to break the hoss, to break the animalistic nature and instinct within all of us. As the Holy Rabbi Elimelech of Lijansk, Rabbi Noam Elimelech says, Lo bara ella lishbar that of, uh, a teva, that a human being was created only to break our nature, to break that physical and um, lowly instinct within a human being. And so the Chovetz Chaim points out very brilliantly. The Chovetz Chaim says, the pasuk says, mm-hmm. that when you go out to war, he says that we have to first identify that we're in battle. We have to identify this battle and the struggle. That's something that we need to be aware of. Um, if we're not aware of the struggle in this battle, what hope and what chance do we have to win and to succeed in this war? Um, let's take perhaps an example. You know, Let's take an example of battle and of war. If there's a soldier who goes out to war, he's in the Vietnam War, the soldier. And he's on the front lines over there in the jungles in Vietnam. And he's walking around and strolling around as if there's no... Um, There's no issues, there's no problems. He's enjoying the beauty of the jungle. He will be taken out in a matter of seconds. The enemy soldiers will cut him down very, very quickly. In order to succeed in battle, in order to be able to win a war, we have to be aware of, first and foremost aware that there's an enemy that's lurking, that there's an enemy that's close by. And then we have to have the right plans, a battle plan, Against the enemy. We have to have the right tactics in dealing with this battle with the enemy And we have to have the right weapons to employ in the battle So the Chofetz Chaim says First and foremost, we have to realize that there's a battle that there's a struggle that there's a inner uh, War going on inside of every one of us if we're not aware of the battle There's no question the enemy will destroy us the Yetzirah wants to sabotage us and destroy our lives in any way that it can, any possible way that it can undermine us and result in our, uh, in, in our failure in every area of our lives, dysfunction in our relationships and depression in our mindset and a lack of self-esteem and addiction and whatever it is, whatever it can do to undermine us and to destroy the ASR is going to do. That's what's going on inside. And there's the Yetzirotl that wants us to rise above that lower self. Wants us to achieve an incredible uh, spiritual potential. Wants us to to reach out and connect with God and eternity and become a holy, magnificent being that is noble and rises above the instincts and the lower self that is a part of us. And that's this inner struggle and battle. That we all face and the only way to succeed is if we aware of the battle and if we use the right um, the the we have a battle plan which means that we we understand our lower self usually that battle plan is developed by learning torah by learning torah we understand the torah view of life by learning musa the classic musa works and the classic works of chasidus they highlight this inner struggle and they give us the tools to overcome our lower self and become a more noble human being. And there's one other incredible secret weapon that we could use in order to succeed in this battle. And that weapon is also told to us in this Pasuk, in the first verse of this week's Parsha. As it says, Unasat, unasanoi Hashem, lokech that Hashem will place the enemy in your hands. The only way we can succeed is if Hashem helps us. We have to turn to Hashem. We have to turn to God for assistance and for success in this battle and in the struggle. And we cry out to Hashem and we say, Hashem, please help us in this battle. Please help us overcome our lower self. Please help us connect to our neshama, to our soul and live a life of Self-control live a life where we rise above these basic Appetites for power and pleasure where we just not just a sophisticated animal running after our Instincts, but rather we have the ability to control our urges and our passions and we make uh, Choices in our lives that are sensible that are logical that are to our benefits And not to our detriment and being a rabbi so one is exposed to many different people many different situations and many different challenges that uh, Come a a, the way of of human beings and so often I see that people don't use basic sechel basic sensibility and logic and common sense in making important decisions and choices in their lives and the insignificant um, more base uh, instincts and inclinations are what people follow rather than the sensible, logical um, uh, aspects of, of their life and of the choices that they make. And that's part of this tra- struggle, this challenge. The the Etsoro wants us just to be caught up in a very narrow minded, um, self centered obsession with power and pleasure. And the Yetzirah wants us to see beyond that, wants us to see the consequences of our behavior and of our choices and of, our, of the t- decisions that we make and where they will take us and what the right course is, the right plan is in our lives and um, in our behavior. So, so this is a very powerful message. There's a war. There's a battle. Gitzayt'sa. Milchama. When we go out, we have to engage in this battle every moment of our lives. As the Masidah Sharam says, it's a milchama chazaka mi panim That it's a raging battle in front of us and behind us every moment of our lives. As long as there's breath in our lungs, as long as we're alive, we have these two uh, opposed forces that are pulling us in different directions. And we have to, we decide which way we go and which one we listen to. Most people in the world don't even know there's a battle. Most people in the world don't even detect the the pullings of the Yetzirah and the voice of the Neshama and the positive inclination is so soft and so drowned out by the powerful drive, physical drive, that we all have, that the the Neshama is dormant and is completely overwhelmed and ignored by the forces of the of the material part of our existence, the physical part of our existence. And as a result, we you know, we see the world around us and what it is. It's a uh, we see a lot of darkness, a lot of suffering, a lot of heartache that could often be prevented if we're able to uh, realize that we engaged in the struggle and turn to Hashem. sasa <inaudible> Hashem Hashem places the enemy in our hands when we turn to Hashem. When we say Hashem, help us, Hashem Give us the strength to overcome lower self. Give us the wisdom, the chokhmah, to make the right decisions. There's a difference between intellectual knowledge and intellectual understanding and wisdom. Wisdom is when we make responsible decisions based on our neshama, on our soul, on our spiritual being, as opposed to following these single-dimensional instincts that um, pull us along, that, that tempt us in our world and in our life. So, Miat Hashem, please God, we should all be engaged in the battle and we should be successful by using the right weapons, which is the learning of the Torah, the keeping of the mitzvahs, and, of course, turning to Hashem to succeed in the struggle and in this battle. So, what we're going to do now with the last uh, part of the show is we're going to talk about the great and holy Maral. And if there was ever an example of an individual who was able to be engaged in the struggle and battle and to succeed and be victorious, in um, connecting with the soul and the spiritual side of our being, the Yitzhak Tov, and defeating the Yetzirah, it is the great and holy Maharal. The Maharal was um, a uh, a person who was born. There's actually a dispute amongst the historians when the Maharal was born. Some say it was in 1512, some say it was 1525, um, and the 413th yot side of the Maharal is coming up um next wednesday today a week on the 18th of Elul. the Maril was born um in uh, in poland in a place called posen in poland on the nat, first night of pesach he was born into a distinguished family of rabbonim um that traced their ancestry back to david hamelech and he was the youngest of four brothers the Maral was married at the age of 32. It's a very interesting story about the, how the Maral was married. Um, he, the shidduch was made between um, he, he, the, the family of the Maral and one of the most prominent families um, in Poland at the time. His uh, father-in-law was supposed to be an individual by the name of Rav Shmelka, who was a very wealthy man, and they uh, agreed to, to get married, uh, he Shmelka's daughter, with, with this young man. And... Uh, Maharal, his name was Reb Luvi, that's why it's Urena Harav Luvi, that's what the acronym of Maharal stands for. And uh, subsequently, in the months of engagement, uh, Roshmelka hit hard time and lost all of his money. And he said to the Maharal that, I understand circumstances have changed, and if you want to call off the Shidduch, we understand um, that that's the case. And his daughter's name was um, was. Pearl. So if you don't want to marry Perilla, um, we would understand that. The morale said, "No, I certainly do want to marry her, but we'll have to delay the wedding until the families have enough money to uh, support the the young couple." And so um, the the date of the wedding was delayed. There's a famous legend. The historians actually are not sure whether this is true or not. There are some that counter about this legend, but some do write that what actually happened was um, the Perilla now she ran a bakery, and that supported her and her, and her parents. Her father had lost his wealth and uh, it was a time of war and the soldiers in Moravia and, and a soldier came into the bakery and he made an order and uh, when he wanted to pay, he said, look, I don't have any money on me. She said, well, this is the sustenance for me and my family. And he was very impressed with that and he gave this, he gave the young lady, Perla, he gave her a, a piece of material, an embroidered piece of, uh, an embroidered garment. And uh, he said, I'll ret- that'll be my deposit. I'll return in a few days with the money. And he never did return. He probably was killed in battle. And she found that was inside the stitching of this garment, there was a pres- precious gem, which was of great value. And now um, she had sufficient money that the young couple could get married. And she was 28 years old at the time. The Maral was 32 years old. So that's the story of his marriage to Perla. And they had six daughters and one son, the son was named after the, the Maharal's father of Betzallo. In 1553, the Maral was elected as the rabbi of Nikolsburg, which is a province of Moravia. And he remained there serving as the rabbi for 20 years. In 1573, he moved to Prague, where he opened the yeshiva. And um, in 1588, he then moved back to Posen, which was the town of his birth, to become the rabbi over there. In 1597, he was then appointed as the rabbi of, which was nine years later, as the rabbi of Prague. As the chief rabbi of Prague. The Maral was not only known, we're going to discuss the works that he wrote, which is the primary source of his uh, renown and impact on Claudius, on the Jewish people. But he was also known for his educational methods and his innovations in the world of education. Um, up until then, in that time, there was a um, focus on young people learning Gomorrah um, Rashi Toisvis and learning the almost Toisvis style of Gomorrah, which is what we call pool. And the morale felt that that was not good for young minds because it was quite confusing and not so um, and not so clear in the text. And therefore, he was very strong on um, young Yeshiva Bochrim learning Mishnah very well. In fact, his primary Talmud was the Toisves Yom Tov of Yom Tav Hela. Um, And he writes in his introduction to his commentary on the Mishnah, the Toisves Yom Tov, that his Rebbe the Maharal very much encouraged young Yeshiva Bochrim to first learn Mishnah before they learned Gomorrah and not to learn Toisves on the Gomorrah. To get the Gemara clear, to get the text of Gemara clear, and then only after they had done that for many, many years could they go into the, the analysis and the style of Toysos. And so the Maral actually left his position in Nicholsburg to go to Prague in order not as a Rav, not to assume any position as a Rov, but rather to um, run the yeshiva and to change the educational system that took place in Nicholsburg at the time. Uh, we'll continue with the Maharal in a moment. Please stay with us.
0: This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxteen on 101.9 High FM.
1: We're talking about the great sage, the Maharal, and it's his yotzah next, next Wednesday, the 18th of Elul. And uh, I'm always very excited to talk about the maral because I feel I have a personal connection to him. My wife is a direct descendant of the maral and therefore it makes our children also descendants of the maral And uh, my wife is also a descendant of the tosis Yomtev who is was one of the main Talmidim of the maral And I imagine they were related as well. Um, we have this information because somebody in my wife's family, um, they uh, put a lot of time into the family tree, and they uh, discovered uh, the direct link to the Toys Jomtev and the Maharal. So uh, I always jump at the opportunity to talk about the Maharal, not only because of his great impact on the Jewish people, but because he's a descendant of my wife and of um, their five children. Okay, so um, we, we were discussing that the Maharal, um went back to Prague in order to try and revamp and change the educational system, which he felt was, was dangerous and was damaging to the next generation. And he was quite successful. He was very brave. He was able to um, to stand up to the establishment and to fight for what he thought was right. And he did succeed in changing the model of teaching in Prague and in many parts of Europe, which for future generations would follow the system of the Mārāl, as opposed to what was happening before. Mārāl um, the, the was also well known amongst uh, non-Jews at the time. His tremendous knowledge for mathematics, for astronomy, and for other sciences uh, made him a well-known figure in in the uh, European intellectual circles. Uh, he was a friend of the great astronomer Tycho Brahe and uh, Johannes Kepler. He was also introduced to the Emperor Rudolf II, and there are many different stories about his relationship with the Emperor and how his um, connections actually were of great importance to the protection of the Jewish people um, in Europe at the time. The Marel wrote many uh, different works. He was a prolific author with over 20 works that we have. Um, He wrote a work called To Ferris Yisrael. Uh, which discusses the greatness of the Torah and mitzvahs, Nasivus Oilam on Pirka Avos, uh Ber Hagoyla, which is uh, talks about many different uh, teachings of Chazal, Netzach Israel talks about the exile and the Ge'ulah, the redemption of the Jewish people, or Chadash on Megiddo's Esther, Nair Mitzvah on Hanukkah, Guru Hashem on Yetzius Mitzrayim, and many other classic works. Of course, wrote Guru Aryeh. Which is his commentary on Rashi on the Torah. Um, it says actually on his grave that, the, I haven't been there, but it uh, it's, uh, says on his grave that he wrote commentaries on the Gumor and Rashi on Toisvus. Those were unfortunately lost in the great fire in Prague at the end of the um, 17th century. The Maral also was uh, credited with Nisim, with miracles. There's a lot of discussion amongst the historians, there are many legends. That are associated with the Maral about creating a goylam. Um A golem is this creature that Kabbalists are able to create um, using certain incantations of Hashem's name. And uh, the it's uh, the Von Lugan was involved in such things, and the and the uh, Ramchal who were much later. There's no question the, the Maral had the ability to do so. The question is really: Are, are those legends true? Are they not? Um, the the historical accounts of the golem have been contradicted by historians, and therefore the, the responsible view is that um, these legends are not true about the golem and uh, that of, of the moral creating a golem, but, uh, but you know the legends sometimes are um, completely um, overrun the facts and the truth, and so that legend still remains. But it shouldn't be the source of the admiration and respect for the Maharal because his tremendous works um, really paved the way for um, future generations of Hashgopha. So what I mean, um, I actually heard there's an excellent podcast. Chaifim uh, actually has just started a, a show um, on a Monday with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch called History of the Curious. And uh, Rabbi Hirsch actually contacted me to say he has this post- podcast about history and how could he get it to South Africa. So I suggested to him that he should have a show on Chai FM. And I'm so glad that that has materialized. And uh, recently he did a podcast together with Rabbi Tetz. And uh, I listened to that podcast and it was fascinating. And Rabbi Tetz actually explained um, the the genius of the Maharal and his, what he actually did, the morale, how he... Uh, his uh, writings transformed the Jewish world and were completely um, innovative at the time um, and uh, what Rabbi Tetz says is that Rabbi Tetz is very qualified to speak about things because his Rebbe Rabbi Moshe Shapiro was perhaps the greatest expert in the writings of the Maharal in our times in our generation and uh, How Rabbi Tetz explains this is that he said that what the Maharal did is he took took very deep Kabbalistic concepts and he explained them in philosophical terms, in terms that were uh, more conceptual for our understanding. Instead of using these complicated Kabbalistic terms and principles, he was able to translate them in terms that uh, those who are not experts in Kabbalah could understand. And the Maharal was the transition between the Rishonim and the Akronim. The Rishonim was a period of of time when the great sages, they were called Rishonim, on a very high level, they knew Kol Torah, Kuloi, Rashi, Toisvis, um the Rambam, the Ramban, uh, Ibn Ezra, these were the great Rishonim whose works explain Torah to us, who are essential for us to understand Torah, and then from about the beginning, the end of the, of the uh, 15th century, the the end of the 1400s, beginning of the 1500s, beginning of the 16th century was a transition from the Rishonim to the Achronim, and the Maharal lived at that time, and he, he was able to take the deep teachings of the Rishonim and translate them almost and make them more understandable to the later generations, um, and so as a result of of him being able to do that, so the 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 co- these deep concepts became accessible to later generations and the Hashkofa, the the system of understanding of the outlook of the torah of understanding the torah's view of life of understanding the torah's teachings about life um, many of the Hashkaphic teachings that we have today are based on the explanations of the maharam or based on the system that the maharam explained using of course the foundation was the deep kabbalistic principles but it will, the philosophical and conceptual uh, framework that was laid out by the Maharal is what we pretty much understand and use today. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment.
0: This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxstein on 101.9 High FM.
1: So to conclude, in honor of the Maharal's 413th Yotzat, which will be next Wednesday, the 18th of Elul, I want to share with you an idea of the Maharal. Um, And we see how he had this unique ability to explain the depths of the words of our sages in terms and in, in principles that we could relate to and understand. But he really opened up the maharal, the depth of what the sages teach us and what they are saying and how they fit into the overall picture of life and of the purpose of life according to the Torah. So one such example which Rabbi Tach used um, from the maharal is that the maharal explains the, an answer to the famous kasha, the famous question, why is it necessary to have a messianic era? So the Jewish view of life is that we live in this world, in this physical world, in which we have B'chirah, we have free choice, and we live as we do in a world where there's Hest where Hashem's presence is hidden. We have to work to see Hashem. Not that hard, because if we open our eyes in an objective way, we can see a magnificent world of exquisite design, and the fingerprints of the Creator are everywhere where we turn. But it's not obvious and clear, like I am now sitting and looking at my cell phone in front of me that's clear and obvious you know there's my cell phone so i don't see hashem in the same way that there is hashem i have to work a little bit harder but it's obvious and clear to any rational clear thinking individual that there must be a creator of this world which has um which in which there's such sophisticated design and so that's our life and our challenges to live in this difficult challenging world in which we experience Many, uh, many different um, situations and circumstances and hardships, and we're supposed to live a life in which we allow our neshama. As we started the show, we're talking about the positive inclination, the part of us which strives for perfection and spirituality. We allow that part to be the dominant aspect of our being, and that should rule and control and override the lower part of our being. The horse controls the rider. Not the other way around and that's the challenge of life and that's the work of this world and we'll live in this world for six thousand years and then we have a period called the messianic era which will usher in the final conclusion of Existence in this world which will be the last thousand years this the seventh millennium And that will then lead to the perfection of the world and that's the cycle And that's what we're going through six thousand years like six days of the week. We work and then we have Shabbos in the seventh day of the week. The question is, why do you need a messianic era? That's a famous kasha that's asked. Why do we need a transition from this world into the next world? And this messianic era is a—it's like, it's neither the six days of work nor Shabbos. It's something in between. It's a transition. It's a time when some of the korbanos, the sacrifices will apply, and some of the korbanos won't apply. It's a time, w- it's this intermediate time where um, it's not weekday, but it's not Shabbat. It's kind of like a yomtiv. It's that transition. Um, and why is that time of transition necessary? Uh, why is that part of the process? The moral answers very, very brilliantly. And he says, he answers this, in, if you want to look it up in Netzach Yisrael, chapter Memvav, chapter 46. And he says the following. He says, the reason is that we can't go straight from the time of, of work, which is this world that we're in, into the time of perfection of Oyelamhaba. But the Messianic era is the third phase, and it's absolutely necessary because, in order to reach perfection, um, there are many obstacles. Right? We we live our lives, and very often there are many limitations that we face. And for example, you know, there's illness, and there's Uh, limitations to our intellectual ability and there's other difficulties and challenges and traumas that are part of our lives and those are very difficult to overcome and to um, and to in other words, we can't reach our full potential because of these circumstances that are beyond our control in this world and therefore Hashem Created this phase of transition where those difficult traumas will be removed and we will be able to then perfect ourselves without those blockages and those hindrances. I, I, I'm running out of time, so I have to say it very quickly, but there's a lot to be said about this and to elaborate on it. And therefore, we have this period of transition in which, but in that period of transition the era, we can only work on those things we started out with. We can't work, if we hadn't started the work, we can't continue it. We are able to now live in a certain time where those external traumas beyond our control are removed, and we continue with that work that we started with in the time when things were very challenging and very difficult. And that's the Messianic era, and that's why it's essential and necessary. And that will bring us into the absolute perfection of Oilam Haba, which are the last thousand years. So that's the explanation of the Maral of why it's needed. So that's an example of the depth and the beauty and the power of the Maral based on all of the Kabbalistic sources, and of course, based on the teachings of the Torah, which is the foundation of everything. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.